Hello and welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we have a double bill from environmental justice show Rising Clyde, hosted by Ian Bruce. The first comes from a protest outside what we know as Colonial Headquarters in Edinburgh, and it's protesting the UK's energy and net zero strategy, which, according to the protesters, is not zero and not new. The second half of the episode looks at land reform, its history and its future, and the Scottish Government's land reform bill. Welcome to Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. I'm Ian Bruce uh, outside Queen Elizabeth House in Edinburgh, where members of the Edinburgh Climate Justice Coalition, Extinction Rebellion and other movements have come to protest at the new energy and net zero strategy launched by the Westminster government. I've been talking to some of them who say it not only isn't enough, it's going in precisely the wrong direction. So yeah, we're here outside the UK government building in Edinburgh because um, yesterday they released their updated net zero strategy. Um, they, were, they were basically forced to update it because they lost a court case to Friends of the Earth last year, um, which said that it didn't have enough detail in it to prove how they were going to keep to their carbon budgets and their climate targets. So they've released thousands of pages of documents yesterday um, which supposedly set out how they will reach their carbon budgets but actually they don't really take us any further along the road to meeting the climate targets. Um, They don't lay out for example any plan for a nationwide insulation scheme, they don't say anything about allowing more onshore wind power, they don't say anything about phasing out oil and gas, in fact they actually um, commit to maximising the extraction of oil and gas from the North Sea which is completely opposite to what all the climate scientists are telling us. 700 climate scientists wrote to the UK government um, last week telling them that they shouldn't allow new oil and gas licensing and the Rosebank oil field to go ahead. The IPCC report that came out last week as well um, was really clear that we can't be allowing new fossil fuels to be extracted if we want to keep below 1.5 degrees of warming. So um, yeah, we're basically here today to tell the UK government that we're not going to accept this net zero strategy. doesn't say anything, it's a complete rebrand of their existing commitments and um, we want to see better from them and we want to see them making actually strong commitments to phasing out oil and gas which is at the end of the day what's needed. My view is that carbon capture and storage is is really a a diversion. I mean I could go on for a long time about why it's not part of the solution but Certainly, any significant effect, even if it worked at scale, which is, there are big questions about, any significant impact of it would be a long time in the future. But much more so, I think it's totally bound up with what's been the one consistent strand of UK government policy over climate, which has been to focus on the interests of the big big energy companies and you know when they talk about carbon capture the 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 few examples of it being used so far have all been about actually squeezing the maximum amount of oil and gas out of reservoirs because what they do is pump the carbon dioxide into the ground to get the bits of oil out that they couldn't have got under normal extraction processes I mean, I do get a bit lost for words when you read this because in any sane world, we wouldn't be talking about this at all. I can envisage a time in the future when carbon capture might be something that we would do to an extent. But at a time of climate emergency, when the absolutely overriding objective is to get carbon emissions right down as quickly as possible, investment in carbon capture is a is a diversion, a waste of time and a waste of money and not and and it is basically greenwashing. It's a, trying to make them look as if they they've got a strategy when they don't. But I think it's also tied up very much with the other parts of their strategy which are around kind of hydrogen and, and nuclear as well, which are different aspects of a, a similar approach. So yeah hydrogen 
there, there's a really large reliance on hydrogen energy in um, the net zero strategy, but this is yeah largely another diversion. Um, there may be some use for hydrogen in decarbonising heavy industry, but apart from that, the energy that's used to create hydrogen would be much better spent just creating green electricity and using that to electrify different sectors like heating and transport. Um, hydrogen's really inefficient, it's really expensive, it takes a lot of energy to make and often it's made by energy that comes from fossil fuels which then relies on carbon capture which doesn't exist um, at any scale yet. So the concept of, green, of um, clean hydrogen is largely um, not true at the moment despite um, having a lot of money already poured into it. The UK government is fully behind the fossil fuel industry to extract every last drop of oil and gas out of the North Sea. That's not even paraphrasing what they are saying. That's a direct quote from their policy. They want every last drop of oil and gas out of the North Sea so that they can make the maximum profit. So this isn't the UK government making profit from it. It's the oil companies making these massive record-breaking profits every year while paying very minimal tax to the UK government because of loop tax loopholes, especially in their windfall tax, which actually incentivizes oil and gas companies to keep on drilling for new oil and gas. Um, so you can see the influence of the oil and gas industry in the UK government's policies. It's really clear that um, they've been lobbying behind the scenes and showing um, and like asking for policies that are much more sympathetic to them and are in their best interest rather than in the best interest of people who are struggling with their energy bills, for example. Stop! 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 3.75 billion is a tax break on Upper Fleckburnor now if they go ahead with development. That's money that could be used for the green transition for ensuring no one falls below minimum energy requirements or for ensuring that every public sector worker receives a real pay rise. Rosebank is the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. Um, for months and months now it's been kind of delayed and there's been a lot of back and forth between um, the UK government's regulator and Equinor, the company that's um, asking to develop the license. Um, it's finally reached the desk now we've heard of Grant Shapps, who's the Secretary of State for um, energy security and net zero, so he's the final decision maker on the Rosebank license. So it's important to add that Rosebank already has a license, it's not part of the most recent licensing round for oil and gas. Um, it's had a license for years and now Equinor is ready to start developing it, but they need this final permission from the UK government in order to do that. So within the next week or two weeks, um, Grant Shapps will have to make a decision on Rosebank. Um, Lots of people have been telling him that this is a terrible idea. Um, the Labour, UK Labour Party has now come out against um, Rosebank. Loads of MPs have been asking questions in Parliament about it. There are a lot of MSPs as well that are um, against Rosebank. Um, 700 scientists have written to the UK government saying Rosebank would be a bad idea. Even Equinor's investors are writing to the Norwegian government, which is the majority uh, stakeholder in Equinor, to tell them that they don't think Equinor's um, net zero policies are good enough. So it's really, really clear that we can't allow Rosebank to go ahead. Um, the UK government just needs to see this and stop it from happening. What's the Scottish government doing about it? The Scottish government itself hasn't made a clear statement on Rosebank. They've said that they don't think that new licenses should be allowed to go ahead. Um, but since Rosebank already has a license, it kind of falls through the gaps um, in this policy. So they haven't said anything specific on Rosebank, although individual MSPs have. Um, so ideally, they would come out and say strongly that they think that Rosebank shouldn't go ahead. They did this for Cambo. Nicola Sturgeon in 2021 said that she thought Cambo, the Cambo oil field shouldn't go ahead and really soon after that Shell pulled its funding from the oil field. So it makes a really big difference the Scottish Government's opinion um, on these things, especially if they stay really strong in their um, messaging. So we'd really urge the Scottish Government to come out against the Rosebank oil field and make sure that it doesn't happen, even though they don't have direct decision-making power over um, whether it's allowed to go ahead or not, they do have significant influence, so um, they should use that to make sure it doesn't go ahead. No more gas, no more oil! Keep your carbon in the soil! Looks at the moment as if there's going to be a kind of continuity with uh, Nicola Sturgeon, um, but there's a, 
a consultation out at the moment on energy policy and that doesn't bode well for the future really. I mean, I'm just picking up what Freya was saying about hydrogen, for example. I mean, people, I think, find some of the issues about the kind of inefficiency of hydrogen, for example, quite hard to get their head around. But a couple of things that illustrate that is, at the moment, almost all hydrogen that's produced in the world for a variety of different purposes, industrial and agricultural and so on, um, all of that is dirty hydrogen that produces uh, lots of carbon dioxide um, in, in the process of manufacturing. Um, if we were to turn that green by uh, using electrolysis instead, uh, we would need one and a half times as much electricity as the whole of all the world's renewables at the moment to do that. That gives you some indication of, uh, and that's just to keep hydrogen as it is, but actually the Scottish Government and lots of other Western uh, European governments have got targets to increase hydrogen production by large amounts. And if you look at the, some of the things in the draft energy policy, they're, they're talking about a new wave of offshore wind, for example, that's okay, although there are issues about ownership and, you know, and, and, and the future of that. But um, they, they also say that Scotland starts becoming a, a centre for production of hydrogen as well. In fact, it takes all of the new electricity capacity that they talk about in their, in their policy to produce the amount of hydrogen they're talking about. You know, so uh, it's, it's just a crazy system. And so in a way, the Scottish Government, although it's, it's really welcome that they've started to question things like North Sea oil and gas production, because up till now they are still fully signed up members of the North Sea transition deal along with the, um, the Westminster government and, and sadly the major trade unions that are offshore too. But, uh, but it's been very good that they've started to question that, but they are still totally bought in to some of the underlying things in the Westminster strategy as well around carbon capture and hydrogen and so on. And we really need to win a big break to that because until we won't get the, well, I'll, I'll put it a different way, the investment that goes into all of those things is wasted investment if you're interested in cutting carbon emissions. We need direct investment in all of the things like public transport, uh, retrofitting homes and so on that will really make a difference and really drive down carbon emissions. That's, that's where the priority is and it's a, a priority for now, not for uh, you know, 20 years time or 25 years time when, as, as they often push these things off to. No more gas, no more oil! Keep your carbon in the soil! No more gas, no more oil! Keep your carbon in the soil! So beyond the policies of the two governments, what do the movements need to do now to turn this around? I, I mean, that's, a, that's, the, that's the really important question. And I think we just have to build, build power, really, uh, build power to change things. And that means a, a number of things. I mean, it means actually reaching out to much wider sections of society. Because I, I, my feeling is that most people are concerned about climate change, but they also mostly don't think that we can do anything. Um, but things are changing. I, I was up in the northeast, well, the Murray Coast, uh, a couple of weeks ago, with a public meeting in a small town called Bucky, which has got the highest proportion of people who work offshore in it of any town in Scotland, I think. And I, to be honest, not very long ago, I think if you'd had a public meeting in Bucky, uh, you'd have probably got run out of town for questioning uh, the future of the, the oil industry. We had loads of oil and gas workers at the, at the meeting, and they were united in the, the view that there should be an end to production of oil and gas in the North Sea. They were really serious about that, but what they didn't have was... Uh, any confidence that there was going to be any social justice involved in that transition. They think there should be a transition, but they'd like to be involved in renewables, and it's really hard for them to, 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 make, to make that step. Yeah, so it's really important to be representing the actual voices of workers in the oil and gas industry. Um, when we're looking at solutions, that's 
exactly what a just transition means. Workers need to be at the centre of decision making. So, um, yeah, so Friends of the Earth Scotland and Platform has um, worked with a load of oil and gas workers and surveyed a much wider proportion as well um, and come up with 11 demands that, um, or 10 demands that um, reflect the needs of the workers within this just transition. So. They cover things like training and um, decision making, union representation and it's really really important that governments take these into account when they're planning for a transition away from oil and gas. We can't just um, allow workers to be dropped and communities to be abandoned by the industry and the government um, support because a lot of people and families and communities rely on the oil and gas industry currently so we need to make sure that they're our other jobs for them to go into and training in order for them to make that transition. I think it shows that people want to do stuff. It's just that, you know, the, the question you asked earlier, Ian, about, you know, what do we do? Um, I mean, we, we, need, we have to move to a place where people start feeling that we've got enough power to, to make politicians do what they need to do rather than just asking them what they what, what to do because at the moment they in rhetoric they sometimes seem to be responding to us but you know if you take the, the parliament just down the road I mean we're outside protesting quite a lot actually the oil and gas industry is in there most days of the week bending the ears of MSPs and, and ministers and so on and we need to turn that around. We need to make it sure that, the, that they can't get in there and the, the, own, the voices they hear are from you know, climate campaigners. You know. I, I think one of, my, one of the things which I think has happened a little bit in the last few months is that in the, in the kind of new wave of industrial disputes, I think lots of the people involved have actually been really interested in how you know, pay and working conditions links to cost of living and that links to climate. I don't think at the top level the unions have taken that seriously enough but I think it's a really big step forward that, that those conversations are taking place and it's a first step to actually beginning to have a kind of a kind of political industrial movement that takes puts climate at the centre of everything because for me um, uh, we've reached a point in our history where you can't talk about a decent future unless you talk about climate all the time, not as an add-on, not as something separate, but as something that's integral to everything we organise and, and fight around. So come on, with freedom, I'm Ian Bruce and this is Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. In this programme, we want to look at land, Scott land. Most of us in Scotland feel some pride at the extraordinary beauty of this country's rural landscapes, but many of us who are huddled in the central belt have little or no opportunity to enjoy these amazing spaces, and few of us who do have much understanding of the huge problems these areas and the communities who live and work there are facing. Environmental degradation, the terrible loss of biodiversity, and the absurd concentration of ownership, wealth and control alongside poverty and neglect that's characterised Scottish land for centuries. And yet the possibilities offered by this natural resource are also extraordinary for the future of Scotland and indeed for the well-being of our planet. So, to try to throw some light on these vital issues, we're very happy to have with us Elsa Rayburn, who's the chair of Community Land Scotland, and Alan McCombs from the John Muir Trust. Thank you so much for being with us. Just so that our audience can understand a little bit where you're coming from to approach these problems, maybe each of you could tell us very, very briefly what your organization is and what it does. 
Thanks, Ian, and thanks for the invitation to, to speak today. Um, yeah, I'm the chair of Community Land Scotland, so we're the um, national membership organisation for community landowners. So our members stretch um, all across Scotland and the islands. It's not just land they own, but a huge variety of different assets. So they'll own the local shop or the pub or they'll own housing, lighthouses, big tracts of forestry, whole islands, estates every type of asset you can think of and communities over the last 100 years because we're on 100 years of community ownership now have worked really hard to bring into ownership assets that are important to them whether that's to address a particular opportunity or to address a threat in their area or to save some services or develop facilities so that's communities right across scotland i'm also chair of the isle of egg heritage trust and the residents of egg bought their island in 1997 and um, so owned over 25 years now and since hiring the island and um, they were the first um, community to generate their own 24-7 power from renewables and um, they've also got their own housing and farms and they run various other um, assets on the island as well so um, quite a broad spectrum of activity going on there hopefully we get a chance to talk about it today. Alan what about the John Muir Trust? Uh, the John Muir Trust um, is a membership organisation but it's individual members whose mission is to protect and restore uh, wild places for the benefit of nature, for the benefit of local communities who live in and around wild places, and for the benefit of the nation as a whole. Now, that might seem quite straightforward, but it takes us in a quite um, a complex range of different activities and relationships. So we're involved in land management. We own and manage Ben Nevis and a number of other big mountain and coastal properties, um, mainly in the Highlands, but in other parts as well, for a bit further south. We're involved in science and ecology, and, and we, we work with academic institutions and scientists. We are involved with education, working with schools, um, educating uh, young people on nature um, and the benefits of it. We work with recreational organisations such as Mountaineering Scotland and Ramblers Scotland. With We work with communities, including Community Land Scotland. We work very constructively with Community Land Scotland and with a number of individual community landowners. We're also involved in campaigning policy, just developing ideas um, and trying to get these ideas driven forward. And I think one of the points, we also work with other environmental organisations. One of the things I think the John Trust stands out for is that straddling of different sectors. And at the heart of what we do is environmental justice, combined with social justice, that's what we're, what we're all about. Thanks, Alan, that's, uh, that's great. I'd like to start by trying to tease out a bit more what the nature of the problem is with the land in Scotland. Now, we, we mentioned the highly concentrated pattern of ownership. Where does that come from and why is it still an issue well into the 21st century? Alan, do you want to kick us off on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's quite a complex mix of reasons which include history, geography, politics, culture, economics, and we have have notoriously one of the most concentrated land ownership patterns in Europe. Alongside that, we have a an extremely imbalanced population distribution, which you alluded to in your introduction when you said about people living in urban areas being kind of disconnected from land. That's partly because people associate Scotland with mountains and locks and coasts and marine areas, etc. But it's actually perhaps the most urbanised or certainly one of the most urbanised countries in Europe, where the vast majority of our population live in a tiny fragment of our landmass, something like 80% of our people live in something like 4 or 5% of our land. 
Scotland is the most sparsely populated country in Europe, apart from those uh, countries in Scandinavia that extend into the Arctic uh, Circle. Um, the Highlands, one region of Scotland, the size of Belgium, where the population density is uh, lower, um, 10 times lower in, in some cases than the three most sparsely populated counties of England. So we have a kind of really skewed situation in Scotland between concentrated land ownership, seriously imbalanced uh, demography and distribution of uh, population. And alongside that, again, you alluded to it in your introduction, we have a highly degraded landscape. It's starkly beautiful mountains, logs, but that beauty conceals severe environmental degradation, ecological impoverishment, and a lack of life, both human life and wildlife, vegetation, the lot. And so we have a problem in our hands of the state of our land, the ownership concentration of our land, and the distribution of our population, the depopulation of huge areas of our land. And these three are tied very closely together. Uh, Elsa, why is that serious concentration of land ownership? Why do you see that as a problem? Well, um, Alan's completely right. It's linked into, there's a real complexity of factors here. Obviously, the clearances a couple of hundred years ago, we very much, everyone wants to look forward, but if you look at the landscape, you can see the impact of that um, still in the landscape today. If you go to some of the places that Alan's talking about, you see ruins everywhere. And of course, there were people in all of these landscapes 200 plus years ago. Um, and there were different ways of managing um, those landscapes 200 plus years ago, which were much more environmentally sound. What's happened over the last 200 years is there's been this concentration, which is getting worse and worse. The recent the, the Land Commission report that came out last week um, talked about further threats to further concentration of ownership of land because not only, you know, it's a limited resource, we're not making any more of it, values are constantly rising, so it's a great place to put your money. There's a lot of financial speculation in land at the moment. And of course, we've got this new land use, carbon and carbon sequestration, which is recently um, into being, which is putting further pressure. So there's a huge amount of interest in Scotland's rural land. And um, as Alan's quite rightly said, it's about environmental and social justice. So people can't get houses, they can't get access to land. Communities can't get access to land. If you look at what's been happening in terms of population in, in most of the rural areas, it's going down and it's continuing to go down. And there's huge threats which are now recognised by the Scottish Government around depopulation. And in fact, it's only where communities have actually acquired estates or acquired islands or assets that that population um, demographic is changing and you're getting more young people into those areas. So land ownership is obviously about wealth and it's about power, no matter what anybody says. The ownership of land confers wealth and it confers power. And the more and more that is concentrated into fewer and fewer hands, then the impact that has on how Scotland wants to develop both environmentally and socially and in community terms um, is going to be impacted. So there's there's an opportunity at the moment to do something about it, but that time is almost gone. I have a doubt here because, you know, I have this image of the way, um, you know, that landed elite developed over two, three centuries or even more, you know, in Scotland. And I, what I'm not clear about is whether it's really that pattern that has strangely persisted right into the 21st century, or whether these new things that you mentioned, like, you know, the sort of financialization of land and the sort of, you know, uh, the new sort of market for kind of second homes and all those kinds of things and, and, and carbon sequestration, all, all these sort of relatively modern things have sort of like got implanted on top of that or whether they've kind of replaced that old kind of semi-feudal version of land ownership or how, what exactly has changed and what hasn't changed? 
they've exacerbated existing issues. So you've got that structural inequality in terms of who owns land in Scotland. You've got a very small number of people that own huge tracts of land. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the issues where where things do come to the market. You've got a much hotter market now. You've got people who are looking to acquire land uh, for speculative purposes or for carbon um, purposes or for, um, obviously, timber at the moment. Prices, prices in timber are really high. So you've got people piling into um, that type of market. So you've, you've got this underlying structural problem in that you've got very few people owning big chunks of land and then overlaying on that the market for any land that does become available and the values for that land um, is getting more and more. Prices are rising hugely. Again, I've come back to the Scottish Land Commission report about how prices are rising, but also demand for land is rising. So what that's meaning is your small crofter or your farmer or community cannot access land at all. And I suspect it's even impacting on organisations like Allen's and other organisations in that sector who want to acquire land to um, improve it. Um, they're not able to act in this market either. So that's why regulation is important. Alan, do you want to come back on that? Before? Yeah, I totally agree with the points that was made there. There's always been this... Um, the, what, Tom Johnson, the former Secretary of State for Scotland, called our noble families when he wrote a book, you know, just exposing the connections between the aristocracy, feudalism and land ownership. That's always been part of the equation in, in rural Scotland. And it still is to this day, something like 25% of big estates have been in the hands of the same family for over 500 years. But you've also had commercialisation of land, and that's not just a new thing because the Highland clearances were driven for commercial gain, you know, flooding of millions upon millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of sheep replacing people. And that was at a time where wool prices and prices of meat were sky high, and industrialists from the central belt put big, and in, in England put big money into the highlands to capitalise on that economy. But then you had a strange, um, just as the sheep economy was beginning to dwindle away because of importation of wool and just different technological changes, along came Queen Victoria, who took up sports shooting, and you had the rise of the traditional Victorian shooting estate, which was embraced um, enthusiastically by the old aristocracy, but it was also embraced, and it is to this day, by, if you like, the nouveau reach. Back then, every big industrialist wanted to get a sporting estate in Scotland. Um, not so much to make money, because, but because it was the ultimate status symbol. It was conspicuous consumption writ large. It was the equivalent of buying a football club or having a private jet or a private uh, yacht. And that's still the case to this day. So you may have oil uh, shakes from the Middle East, Russian oligarchs, uh, Scandinavian entrepreneurs, City of London uh, bankers owning big estates in Scotland, not to make money. They do that not to become rich, but because they are already rich in some cases. And now you've got another added uh, layer, and that is people moving in to acquisition of land as a kind of futures market because they think it's going to become valuable for carbon sequestration. And so there's a whole combination of things and there's no one, you know, all three, all three of these, there's other elements to land ownership as well. But these three big elements are causing serious, um, you know, are, are reinforcing the concentrated land ownership pattern that we've had for, for centuries. The carbon market and the financial futures market is not new in terms of island land ownership and rural land ownership in Scotland. It's just part of this sort of narrative arc that started with sheep 
and then it went to the sporting estates and then it went to sick and then it went to renewables and now it's carbon and it's all part of this pattern of people seeing rural land in Scotland as a way to extract wealth from Scotland. So none of this money stays locally, it all leaves the area. And that's why we have depopulation and a poor economy and the environmental degradation and everything that Alan's talking about. So this is new at the minute, carbon, but it's actually just the latest in a long line, which has led to this, the whole issue around concentration of wealth, which is why it needs to be cracked. I want to come back later on to this question of carbon sequestration, because I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an obvious dilemma there for environmentalists and people, you know, climate justice movement and so forth. But I was just, I was reading some of Andy Whiteman's work on this thing about Scotland's land. And one of the things I, I, that struck me uh, in, in his book was how that pattern of land ownership and the, the elite that controlled it was really worried about Scottish devolution back in the 80s and 90s because they kind of, you know they thought that was suddenly going to impinge and change their kind of the power equation I suppose basically you know that they would no longer be able to hang on to that those privileges in the same way or they might not be so I mean has do devolution changed the arithmetic here you know has it changed the the shape of things or not and if not, why not? I think, yeah, it has. I mean, when you've got these entrenched interests, um, everything is a threat. So devolution was a threat. And then every land reform bill that's come along since then. So I think there have been three bills and there's um, three acts and there's a bill slated for this. Year. So it's all a threat um, to those vested interests and those entrenched interests around protecting that wealth and that power. Um, but devolution has allowed Scotland to move away from the English position on land ownership. Obviously, the first land reform act included the right to roam, which has been hugely um, impactful. And it has established um, both legislative and financial support for communities to acquire assets. Um, and it has included, it did introduce the Land Commission, who has a responsibility to take forward further land reform, things like the Land Rights and Responsibility Statement. So, yes, yeah, so it has moved the dial um, on land reform and community ownership, but there's still a long way to go because we can see that the actual underlying patterns of ownership have not been hugely impacted in terms of percentages of ownership. So, yes, there is now um, an ability to talk about these things and communities are much more ambitious and aspirational. The land reform isn't just about community ownership. You mentioned the, the Land Reform Act. I mean, that's obviously a key part of the legislation that's on the table. Tell us a bit more about that, Alan. I mean, is it what is being proposed? Is it adequate? I think uh, the point that he also makes about devolution, what we should remember is that um, Scotland has control over land and environment. It doesn't have the same fiscal powers that it probably needs to really tackle ownership. It does have powers to tackle management and land use. is far more powerful in that area than it is in relation to the actual ownership pattern. Um, I think we should also uh, agree with Elsa that devolution has uh, made changes. That's there was nothing happening in Scotland. You know, land in Scotland was a running sore, and it still is. But there has been progress over these past 23 years, 24 years of uh, devolution. The land reform bill that's currently being discussed is can appear from the outside to be a little bit technical, a little bit dry, because it's dealing with processes, it's dealing with land use, it's dealing with land, what they call land rights and responsibilities, um, land management plans. But underlying that is a determination on the part of some campaigners, Community Land Scotland, John Muir Trust, but also the governmental organisation, the Scottish Land Commission, to drive forward, to make changes, to make sure that land is managed um, in the public interest. The big land of the states are managed in the public interest and for community benefit. I think what is lacking at the moment is, I mean, we would certainly welcome this land reform bill but we think there needs to be a lot more precise detail put in 
What do we mean by the public interest exactly? How do we ensure that land management plans are designed to benefit communities, to divest, in some cases, big landowners of the land that they own and that their uh, control is, is, is diversified so that communities and others can have access to land. These details are still not yet clear based on consultation um, that's been opened up now. We support the direction of travel. We'd like to see more detail and we'd like to see perhaps a bit more radicalism in some areas. For example, the focus of the land reform bill is in estates over 3,000 hectares. Now that's huge and that only involves 350 or so estates. We would like to see it to be as a minimum of a thousand hectares or lower, but a thousand hectares, which is something like four times the size of Holyrood Park, which includes Arthur's Seat and the Crags and various logs. It's something like seven times the size of Pollock Country Park. And so by anybody's uh, calculations, a thousand hectares is huge. And that's one of the things that we would, you know, we would like you know, we certainly are pushing in that along with Community Land Scotland and others. But generally, we're supportive of the direction of travel. There's a financial problem at the heart of this. There's a big, big problem of economics. Yeah, because I wanted to take up the issue of community land ownership. But Elsa, how does that fit into the need for land reform? You know, how far can community land ownership go in replacing the current structures? Yeah, it, it can go quite a long way. So I think what's good about the current land reform bill is it recognises, perhaps for the first time, that actually Scotland's land is a resource for everybody and therefore they're introducing this concept of public interest. Um, and that if, you, if you're a big landowner, and I, I agree with Alan, that you know, JMT are at 1,000 hectares, we're at 500 hectares. If you own big chunks of land, then you must be able to demonstrate that you're holding that in the public interest so you're delivering things for the wider um, outcomes in Scotland, not just personal wealth. So I think that's really important about the current land reform bill. It could be more radical, and we're obviously pushing for um, for more to go in there um, around what the public interest test will look like and things like notifications of sales to get away from this sort of dark market approach we have at the minute. But we're also keen to see communities given some additional powers um, to be able to acquire land. And it's, it's helpful to know that that is in the bill, that there is a presumption that communities will be able to acquire more land because they've proven that when they do acquire big tracts of land like Egg, where I am, um, that I'm the chair of, or Gear, or Bolson, or Noydart, or Parloway, or any of these places, that actually they start building houses, they start increasing the population again, they bring back young people, they create jobs, that all the wealth that's generated from the renewables or other schemes goes back into the local economy and is not extracted. So there's a great argument for community ownership, but we have to recognise, you know, communities everywhere don't want to own everything. Um, so in those places where community ownership is not an option for various reasons, then we need organisations like John Muir Trust or the Woodland Trust or other organisations like that to work together with the communities to ensure that as much as possible of that wealth stays locally and jobs are created locally and housing is created locally. And if it's a big private landowner, then they work with the community. So the communities have and some say in decisions around what happens on the land and can also share from the benefits of it. So there's a whole spectrum of opportunity here. And I think the bill is, is thinking about that, but it needs to go further. I want to turn it back in the last few minutes that we've got to the issue of land and the environment and climate change and so forth. You mentioned the carbon sequestration. I mean, how do you see, Elsa, community land ownership fitting into the challenges that need to be taken up in terms of using the land as a way of, as a part of, a strategy for confronting climate change? 
Well, community landowners are showing they're doing it already. You know, they've been in this game for a long time. So it's not just about planting trees and sequestering carbon and selling offsets. I mean, some communities are a bit sceptical about the whole offset market because they don't think there's sufficient regulation around it. But, you know, they're, they're contributing hugely by either restoring peatland or planting trees. But, you know, behaviour change is going to be absolutely critical to addressing climate change. And communities are really good at changing that local behaviour in terms of recycling, reuse, insulation, um, new passive power standards when they're building houses, active travel, you know, electric car charging points, all of these things that are absolutely critical to changing the way that we as a society function. It's not just about planting trees and restoring peatland, and yet that's where most of the, the, the activity seems to be. And I think that's what communities are really good at. They see that much broader picture and they're in it for the long term. So they're not going to be in and out. They're not going to get in, plant the trees, sell the carbon offsets and clear off. They're in it for 100 years. They're thinking about what their children and their children's children are going to be doing with this land. So I think in, in some respects, the way that communities approach this is the long term sustainable solution because it's not driven by finance. Um, that's the problem we have at the moment. Yes, totally agree with that. Um, I think you can broadly divide Scotland's land ownership sector into four areas. One is public land, which is you know government-owned land mainly, Scottish government-owned land, the forest estate, national forest estate, some national nature reserves and so on. You have the community land sector, which he also has spoken about. You have environmental NGOs, John Muir Trust, RSPB and other environmental organisations on land and any of the private sector. The first three, public, community and environmental NGOs, try to manage land in the public interest to the best of their ability. Sometimes it's difficult because you can be surrounded by private sporting estates that make it difficult to manage an oasis of land for environmental uh, benefit but broadly they they operate in the public interest the big big problem is in the private sector which is a vast majority of Scotland's rural land um, and the private sector to be fair some private landowners are exemplary in terms of the ecological standards not just ecological but they manage land in the public interest for communities, for jobs for for climate for for nature and they're good but they are hugely outnumbered they're now numbered something like 1 to 10 in terms of 10 to 1 in terms of Scotland's broad land mass by sporting estates, by landowners who manage their land for deer and grouse essentially for a niche sport which whose total participants would hardly fit into Inverness Cayley Stadium on a Saturday afternoon and yet something like 40,000 square kilometres of Scotland's land is managed for that primary purpose and that brings with it huge environmental degradation, overgrazing burning, stripping of vegetation, everything, and it creates very few jobs. It does create some jobs, and these jobs are important to these that have them, but it prevents other things happening with that land that would be much more beneficial. So that's part of land reform, tackling that whole area. And unfortunately, um, that is happening um, alongside the Land Reform Bill, there's other legislation coming through in relation to deer management, how deer are managed, which will impact on sporting estates, and how grouse moors are managed, which will impact also in another part of uh, the, the sporting estate culture. So there is positive things happening, but we'll see how things unfold over yeah. the next few years. I'd, I'd certainly hope to take up that issue of sporting estates and so on and so forth more specifically maybe in a future one of these programs but just as a final point you mentioned you know you, we talked about carbon offsets and, and carbon sequestration and so on and so forth and the problems with that from your point of view and of course the climate justice movement to a considerable extent also has big criticisms of that because it's you know it's seen as a way of simply allowing fossil fuel companies to keep on doing business as usual kind of thing and pretending that they're solving the problem when they're not 
But I wanted to ask you, you also mentioned the issue of renewables, you know, and that's obviously, you know, it's a huge issue and we can't go into the big deal in, in, in a lot of detail now. But what would be, what is currently and what could be in the future, the role of a reformed land sector with all those three sectors and particularly community land ownership in terms of renewables? You know, I mean, if we don't want just massive wind farms owned by European energy companies or any other energy company for that matter. What, what's the community alternative in terms of an alternative to fossil fuel energies, basically? Well, there's been some really interesting studies, Ian, which shows that community-owned renewable energy returns 34 times the amount of local benefit to communities as opposed to private. So even private, whether it's hydro or wind or solar, there's such a small return um, locally to the people that are impacted by it. Whereas if the community owns the infrastructure itself, all of the wealth that's generated comes back to that local community. So in the first instance, you get communities much more on board with it because they can see that not only the sort of the environmental, the climate benefits of going down this route, but actually all of the, the wealth and income from it is not being soaked out of the local economy and it's coming back into the economy. Um, so there, there's quite a lot of interest from communities and they're doing this all over the place. They're looking at developing their own hydro and solar schemes. So on egg, um, I already mentioned, we've got a, a combined hydro, solar and wind um, scheme, which we're currently upgrading. And we've been producing our own renewable energy because we're off the grid for a, a very long time now, as has Canna, as has Fair Isle, as has some of the other communities around Scotland. So communities can think a bit more long term. They can think a bit out of the box, um, but we do need more support for them to do it. The only thing is that when we look at carbon sequestration and carbon markets and the potential money that could come in um, to some of the most sparsely populated parts of rural Scotland, we need to learn the lessons of what's happened in the renewable sector. So something that benefited uh, the climate and, and had a positive role to play and decarbonisation, decarbonising the electricity sector was stitched up basically by big energy companies and big, big landowners. The model was build them huge, build them massive, build them across big landscapes and that meant dealing with the biggest private landowners who enriched and made a lot of money and that drove up land prices. Communities, as Elsa says, were squeezed out of that whole process and one of the things we have to the Scottish government has to do and society as a whole has to do is is regulate the um, the carbon sequestration process much more rigorously and make sure that that history doesn't repeat itself we do something that might be of benefit to the climate but it's done in a way that benefits the wealthy and it does not contribute to a just transition, which um, needs to involve social justice as well as environmental justice. The renewable onshore wind in particular has been really double-edged, um, and one side, one edge of that has been extremely damaging both to communities and also even to landscapes and ecosystems. So that's something we need to we need to be wary of in the future. There's a lot more to talk about. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but that's really, really interesting. Thank you so much to both of you. And I hope people will, you know, learn a bit from that, feed people's interest in finding out more about the issues in Scotland's land. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Alan McCombs from the John Muir Trust, Elsa Rayburn from Community Land Scotland. Goodbye. If you'd like to watch the video versions of these episodes, you'll find them both on Independence Live's YouTube channel under the Rising Clyde playlist. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next Friday with another Scottish Independence podcast. Bye now. Bye.